Hello, my name is Sarah and I am your chakra coach. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how the chakra system can help guide you to grow your emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual wellness, leading you closer to your highest self. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here this week and every week for those of you who've been listening for a while. I hope that you're doing well. It is getting colder and darker in the Northern Hemisphere where I live, and I don't know if you remember my episodes on seasons and the chakras, but this is a time of inward energy, uh, a time to sort of power down and recover, to prepare for the coming season of growth. It's a time for rest. And I know we don't really live in a world that honors that exactly. So if you're trying to live more in tune with nature, you may have to be creative in how you find that rest, that recovery, the downtime, especially if this is when you have a lot of holiday celebrations going on. Unfortunately, there is plenty of this yin time left after the December holidays. We can at the very least be thinking about how we want to approach it. I know that's what I'll be thinking about over the next few weeks. My guest today is Ruth Fearnow, and we're going to be talking about a process that she calls therapeutic mindfulness. Several months ago, I did an episode on spiritual bypassing, and this is kind of adjacent to that. Now, Ruth's specialty is helping those of us who accidentally, or maybe intentionally, I don't know, but those of us who uh, use mindfulness or meditation to avoid trauma rather than as a tool to process it, as a way to avoid our feelings instead of feel them. She has a, a really beautiful way of explaining this, why we do it, what it can look like, the problems with doing it, the fact that it's totally natural and 100% human to do it. But when we avoid processing our feelings, as you've probably heard me say like a thousand times, we do more harm than good, sometimes long-term harm that impacts our daily choices. So Ruth will take us through how to have non-judgmental focused attention and use what she calls allowing phrases to show us how to use mindfulness to sit with our emotions instead of avoid them, to, to process our trauma. Uh, Ruth Fearnow is a therapist, an author, and a speaker. Her first book, which is also called Therapeutic Mindfulness, is a synthesis of her decades-long meditation practice and her work healing trauma and mental distress. Uh, Ruth's private journey, and she'll talk about this a little bit in the episode, uh, began when she was a young woman, when she found herself studying Kung Fu and Qigong in China. Uh, it was there that she began to a very serious meditation practice. And while, of course, a, a meditation practice skill takes years to develop, this was her first big step to understanding mindfulness practices. And Ruth's evolution into a trauma therapist has enabled her to integrate this age-old wisdom with trauma-informed insight. So as a result, she's developed healing philosophies and the process of therapeutic mindfulness, which she practices personally, and she teaches to her clientele, many of whom use it on their own, just like she's going to teach you how to do in this episode. 
Uh, Therapeutic mindfulness has been adapted for professional use by colleagues in the mental health field. And when she's not working or spreading the word of therapeutic mindfulness, Ruth enjoys singing, community theater, and time with her family. Now, she and I spent some time in this in this conversation integrating our practices, her process and my work with the chakras. And it was it was just so interesting. Her process is really lovely, and I think you will get a lot out of what she shares. All of her social media links and everything you need to know are all in the show notes. So enjoy the conversation about therapeutic mindfulness with Ruth Fearnow. Welcome to the show, Ruth. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's uh, Life is always interesting, always throws stuff at us. I We could go on a long diatribe about my last week. It's been interesting, but I am super duper grateful that I've been given the tools that I have because even when it's interesting, which usually means a combination of good and bad things happening, sure. um i'm i'm rarely so ruffled as when i was in my 20s so i'm writing it and i and i there's a lot of beautiful things going on as well even when it's crazy i i do feel like interesting is sometimes like the nice word for complicated um (laughs) and that's fine right like a little complications not too bad but yeah you're right absolutely like tools to manage the complications and interesting things that happen in our life are so incredibly valuable. And that actually is lovely because that's what we're going to kind of talk about today, except we're taking a little bit of a different tack. It's a little bit of a, when those tools go wrong, kind of, that's super dramatic. Um, but we're going to talk about sort of, uh, almost misuse of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, I hate to say misuse because that, I don't know, it feels judgmental and like maybe we shouldn't be using those tools or we should. Maybe less effective use. Yeah, there we go. Less effective, less efficient use of these tools. So we're going to get into that in a second, but Ruth, you're a, you're a therapist. And so you do a lot of work with people who have um, PTSD, complex trauma, things like that. I guess I would love to know a little bit about sort of how you got into that and why you started bringing mindfulness techniques into that work. And then also let's talk about how those techniques sometimes get used in a way that is less effective for treating trauma. So, you know, starting easy breezy, easy breezy. So you just threw everything at me. I know. It was literally everything. That's an hour's worth of episode right there. Uh, okay. Let's um, start with the beginning. You're a therapist. Yeah. How did you get into that? And why did you start bringing mindfulness into your practice? Well, it's funny that the first thing you mentioned, you were talking about um, in, in the pre-talk about, you know, people that follow their intuition. And that was a lesson I had to learn. I knew that I wanted to be a therapist and an actress when I was in sixth grade. Um, I must say I am both actually, I don't get paid to be an actress, but it's a good time. Um, (laughs) And so I don't know, I was given that understanding. And then when I grew up and I was getting ready to go into college, I'm like, I I vaguely remember, I remember that I thought that I want to be a therapist and I'm like, yeah, hardly. I'm not going to do that. No, I don't. What was that thought? 
getting close to people's big emotions and their that stuff uh-uh vulnerability no thank you that is clearly not going to happen so i i get into uh, my first career i'm in i'm in information technology did that for 17 years you didn't know that did you i did not know that and i also like i i'm probably mistaken but that actually feels like the literal opposite of therapy <laughs> well <laughs> Because I like to have a good time with whatever's going on. I jokingly say, well, I fixed computers. Now I fix people, but, but you can't fix another person. So it's really tongue in cheek. Um, no, um, I have a, a, a very practical analytical brain. So information technology to me is like doing puzzles for a living. I like puzzles. I've always liked puzzles. Um, that's how I see it in retrospect. And so I find it interesting, keeps my intellectual brain happy, but it didn't, warm my heart. It didn't fill a, a, some kind of need. I felt that there was a bigger purpose, something that would mean something to me. And so even though I very much enjoyed my profession, I was so restless and always looking for what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's what I call my existential crisis. I had it for years. I would always call my dad and have long, long conversations. Maybe I can go back to school and be a chemist. Maybe I can be an engineer. Maybe I can be this. Maybe I can be that. Um, and I was just stuck. And then I don't even know how, but when I was 26, it hit me and I remembered, but it's not like I remembered with my brain. It's like, I remembered with my soul, you're supposed to be a therapist. And it hit me and I'm like, Oh, I'm supposed to be a therapist. And once I remembered it with my soul, it was just like, I never turned back. And it's funny, if you knew how practical I am, even me talking about remembering something with my soul might sound strange to people, unless you're somebody with a, you know, like strong left brain um, tendencies, who has gotten to the point where they listen to intuition. And I think what probably happened, so that happened when I was 26, right before I turned 27. Or maybe it's maybe it was 27 even, but when I was 25, I went to Shaolin, Shaolin, China, and I started studying Kung Fu and Qigong, and I started getting serious about a meditation practice. And after that, I had a breakup. And when I had the breakup, I I had this realization that I had sensed how things were going to end. Not even just that things were going to end, but the feeling around here's what's not going to work and here's how it will feel. So I had that knowledge already and it kind of surprised me. And then I glanced back. Um, so if anyone knew me in my early twenties, I'm um, not shy and I was a flirt. So I dated, you know, um, I, I, it was easy for me to find people to date. And I realized in retrospect, I've always known how it would end every single time. And so that was a realization. I need to start listening to whatever that is. So I think starting a serious meditation practice and realizing that there's wisdom in me that is way smarter than my brain could ever be led me to being open to hearing what I needed to know. And that is you're supposed to be a therapist. And that once I realized like that it would... with my... Yeah, I was gonna say that also sounds like it would sort of transition into using meditation and mindfulness in your practice because you'd already seen the value of it in your own life. 
Yes. Well, I didn't even have a bachelor's degree in IT because they didn't have those back then. I, I went to Microsoft class and became a Microsoft sy uh, certified systems engineer. Some old school IT guys will know what that is. Um, so I had to go back for my bachelor's and then my master's and my master's wasn't two years. It was four years. So by the time I'm graduating or by the time I'm, yeah, yeah getting done with that, I've already been meditating for a decade seriously, you know? And so to ask why, you know, why I became a therapist, um, that doesn't really say why other than I was supposed to, but that's how that journey, what that journey looked like. And then the meditation, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, emotional growth, all emotional growth is spiritual growth. And that ties into meditation and all this stuff. So it's naturally going to be part of what I share. And so I was a therapy intern still in school and I was doing therapy under supervision and already I'm guiding people through guided visualizations and I'm customizing it for every person in front of me based on what's going on with them. And it isn't just feel good stuff. It's like, if they had a realization or there's something they needed, I would help guide them into that to deepen their understanding. So just what I had learned and practiced just naturally fed in to me as a therapist. It was already there. That's so interesting. I, yeah, I love it that you were supposed to be a therapist, right? Like, how did you get into it? Well, I was supposed to be. That actually makes perfect sense to me. And I think it will to a lot of people listening as well. Um, but it it is important to note, like you have to listen to that. Like you could have the thought in your mind your entire life, I'm supposed to be a therapist and never act on it. That's also a possibility. Um, so you're using mindfulness, meditation, all of those techniques in your therapy. At what point, hmm, let me go back. We talked about when we use meditation and mindfulness, in a way that is not effective in treating our emotional trauma or supporting our emotional spiritual growth. What do you mean by that? Because isn't that what meditation is for? Like meditation supports your emotional and spiritual growth. Like how could it not? <laughs> I love the question, the way you put it. How could it not? So glad you asked. Let me tell you. Um, first, let me, let me throw down first that I am a big fan of all the meditation. There's a reason why Time Magazine put two entire special edition just on the research behind mindfulness, on the brain training, on the growth of the chain training, the uh, the shrinking of the amygdala, all the wonderful things that happen. I am a big fan of all the mindfulness, all the meditation, guided visualization, guided mm -hmm. contemplation, contemplative Same. purpose all the things, all right? Yep. Big They're fans wonderful. right here. You and me. Love them. Big fans. Yes, yes, yes. Not, not dissing them in any way, not telling anybody no or they're bad. Absolutely. No, no, it's wonderful stuff. And I'm a big fan and I still teach people that stuff. What happened was um, I'm teaching that stuff as, you know, I'm teaching people to follow their own practice. I'm teaching people who've never heard of this stuff. I'm in the Midwest. Um, some people think that my, mindfulness or meditation or any of the related practices are specific to religion that's anti-Christian. And so they need some education. You know, I, I would have people go on YouTube, look up Christian guided meditation and a whole bunch of stuff pops up. And I say, see, it's not just for... Buddhists anymore, or whatever you think everyone. it is. It's for anyone right. that wants to participate in it is who it's for. Yeah. It's theology independent. It's just a Correct. wonderful tool. You That's know, right. it can be just straight scientific. So, so all that stuff is really good. And so I'm teaching people that. And so I have 
a person, and this happened fairly commonly when somebody grew up with so much chaos in their life and chaos with the people around them, and they have no idea how to uh, use any emotional regulation. And they learn something like the easy one is a guided visualization. I'm going to put you at the beach and you're going to feel the sun on your skin and smell the salt air and hear the waves and feel the sand on your toes and see the horizon and just all the wonderful things. And it's going to feel so peaceful. And people that have never had emotional regulation, some of them are so amazed by the simplest exercise and they think this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I felt, I haven't felt this peaceful in years. This is what I need to do. And I had one in particular that has such a, um, aversion and intense, like a, let's say way above average, intense aversion of feeling and facing stuff, just a ton of fear in her heart. And so she gets this and she runs with it. She's thinking, oh, this is great. She writes a thesis on it. I mean, it's crazy. And I, I believe now what happened was every time something uncomfortable came up, I'm at the beach, I'm at the beach. <laughs> You know, and she would do that on purpose to make the bad feeling go away. Yeah. And now it's avoidance. In fact, I submit that it is non, not mindfulness because mindfulness is non-judgmental focused attention. And the minute you judge this feeling as bad, you are no longer mindful. You are avoidant. I think that is such an excellent point. You cannot be mindfully avoiding your feelings because <laughs> mindfulness and avoidance it's are opposites right they those cannot exist at the same time right and the so, fact of avoidance brings in there are there are core beliefs that's bad and scary i shouldn't feel that i can't handle it it's too much for me it will break me these are judgments yeah and mindfulness doesn't have judgment. You can be very mindful on something that's very pleasant and in the present moment. But if you're doing it to force a feeling away, something is different. And you're giving yourself messages that that feeling is too big or too scary or too terrible. And now you're actually reinforcing fear. And that's something people don't know. Yes. And I think people do that with anger too, right? We, we expect yeah. that anytime we feel anger, Oh, we shouldn't, I shouldn't feel angry. Oh, I should be peaceful. I'm a spiritual person. Spiritual people don't feel angry. And so then we try to meditate our anger away. Um, yes. which I know from personal experience, I used to feel that way too, until I realized that sometimes like spiritual people do get angry. There's a lot of unjustness in the world that I want to be angry about. Right. right. Like, that's <laughs> like, if I just meditate it all away, who's going to change things? But anyway, so people to avoid fear and discomfort and hard feelings and, and anger and anger and past trauma and to avoid thinking about past trauma, that kind of thing past, too. Yeah. Past, present, future. Oh, interesting. oh my God. I'm so afraid I might get fired or they might leave me. Avoid, avoid, avoid anything, anything that feels bad. Yeah. Anything that feels bad. So we meditate in order to sort of calm our emotional to calm our our nervous system but what's the harm in doing that tell me tell me how that actually harms our our mental health and our emotional health um i'm a firm believer that we have to address both sides you can 
like say you're going through a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos in life. You can do a meditation on something very calming, a very calm focus, because I need a few moments where my brain is not going nuts and I get to rest. Mm-hmm. What do you do for the next six days and 30 and, you, you know, 20, 23 and a half hours? Or what do you do for the next 23 and a half hours? Is it only that? Do you only avoid if you spend some time facing and acknowledging your feelings and you spend some time filling your cup, you're okay, right? But if you never acknowledge your feelings, if the moment comes up, you're like, oh gosh, okay, I'm at the beach, I'm at the beach. How to let me slow breathe, slow breathe. Like any, if, if there's zero times that you acknowledge the bad stuff, your brain is not stupid. It knows you're avoiding and it's gonna let you do it, but so long before it calls you out on it. What, what does that look like? In, what, that's exactly where I'm going. Good. Oh, good. Because what you push down pushes back. So I like to take these um, cloth cubes, right? If anyone's ever seen these cloth cubes that go in these little cubbies. And if I'm stuffing things in here and it gets so much, and then I have like on top of this, a blanket and I stuff it so hard and it's bulging at the sides. And I'm like, no, I can't see it directly. I need to shove it down. It will explode. You can imagine the seams ripping and it explodes. What you push down pushes back. Feelings will not be ignored. And the way it looks when it explodes sideways, I can't look at it, but it's going to come out. Nightmares, panic attack, rage attacks. Feelings will not be ignored. They will be triggered. You can be peaceful, peaceful, and the wrong thing happens and it triggers and it feels exactly like when your dad yelled. It feels exactly like when this happened. It feels exactly like when whatever, you know, or you might, or when it's really shoved down, you might not make any connection. A lot of therapy is unraveling those connections to help heal origins, right? So if you shove it down hard enough, you'll have no idea. I can tell you that as a trauma therapist, if somebody comes to me and they have panic attacks and they know what triggers it, that is way, way better than if you have panic attacks with no idea why. When someone has no clue, I think, oh, shoot. Okay. So sometimes we have no idea what triggers it because we've spent so much of our time and effort pushing it down and hiding it from ourselves. Yes. Um, I feel like I've also seen this where these feelings get pushed down and pushed down and then will manifest themselves as like phantom pain um, or phantom pain, illnesses, things like that, you know, simply because, well, from a practical standpoint, you weaken your immune system when you push trauma down like that. And then you don't have the capacity to fight off things that come in from the outside. So ulcers, heart disease, all kinds of things, muscle, you can get joint pain sometimes because your muscles are always clenched so hard. Your neck and shoulders can be clenched so much that you pull your spine out of alignment and you need the chiropractor all the time. Yes. Very Mm -hmm. good point. Physical as well. Physical as well. Um, so Okay. So that sounds like a whole like process to like be digging down to find those things. But I think a lot of people have like kind of some idea what they're hiding from, what they're avoiding. Um, Are there ways that we should be, how, how do we know in ourselves? How do we know if we're using our meditation practice to avoid our feelings or if we're using our meditation practice and our mindfulness practice as part of our um, emotional processing. Like how can we, how can we tell the difference in ourselves? 
Hmm. That's an interesting question. One I haven't gotten specifically before. Um, <laughs> and as, as we go along our path, if we're trying to listen to the voice within the voice that has wisdom, um, one woman that I was working with when we were done with something, or, you know, if I'm trying to have her go inward, I would just ask her check. Is there anything you're avoiding today? She knew right away. She knew the answer. You don't think about it if you don't ask, but if you check in with your wise place inside and you're like, do I feel like I'm avoiding anything in this session? She knew instantly. In general, in general, I, I think it really does go back to, we need to take some time where we're facing it. Um, it's funny. So uh, I don't know if it's we haven't brought it up yet, but I have this book called Therapeutic Mindfulness and the chapter about the process of therapeutic mindfulness, which is how to use mindfulness specifically to heal uncomfortable feelings. That's just a few pages long. That's not a long thing at all. I, this process is half a page and then I describe it to give more detail. The process on or the chapter on resistance is I think it's 26 pages long or something. That's like, it's, it's like 10 times as long as the process because the process is simple, but your mind is complicated. So I think in an individual session, you can check, um, did I face it enough today? And you'll feel that, or did I, am I hardcore avoiding something now? And you'll feel that, you know, and you only have to do a little at a time, but in general, if you're taking some time, I think you, we got, again, we got to fill up the tank. We got to do the good stuff, but you got to spend some time addressing the hard stuff. Yeah. And if you're spending some time doing that, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but you do have to be doing it. If you're doing that work, your brain won't store up and explode the same way. It, it knows the difference. Do you think that that's kind of a common human reaction to, to, to do that sort of cover-up work. Like, I feel oh, like that is, yeah. I feel like for a lot of people, that's sort of a, like a knee-jerk response. Like they, you have a bad that's feeling. Not, you know what? It's like, I, don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like human or if that's like cultural and societal, or if it's just like, it makes you feel, but I don't know. I believe it's absolutely instinctual. There is, um, so the way I describe it in my book, again, it's funny because it's, this is how I see it. Feelings are like a hot stove. If you touch it, you jerk back. Boom. Automatic. And so, so hopefully that's, I'm really glad you asked that because I, I want everyone to hear if they're recognizing parts of themselves in, in this, the last thing I want for them to do is feel shame. Right. Everyone does. You know who does it? Who's got a lot of experience and still does it and has therapist? two thoughts. <laughs> Like yeah. even when I do my process of therapeutic mindfulness, if I go into where the feeling is in my body and I know what to do and I know the process. And so I do that. And then I'm looking at the feeling and I've realized I still have to tell myself in words inside my head or out loud, but I still have to say it, let the feeling be there. Cause there's a little part of me is like, eh, I don't like that. And I have to tell myself, let it be there. And then I can relax into it. So I'm like, I was doing this for years and realize that I still have to do that because our default reaction is that's icky. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, so it's really not about, do we avoid the answer is clearly yes. And I absolutely don't think it's cultural. Now, 
culture will, and it, this could be family culture, what your family taught you, or in general culture, like men are allowed to feel certain kinds of feelings and not, same with women. So there are cultural things. There are things that we learn where very wise parents or mentors or teachers can sometimes teach us more about how to to lessen our avoidance and face more. And some will reinforce it and we will have walls and castles and cities built up around our little vulnerable parts of us. So it can be a lot better, or a lot worse, but is it human? Yeah, 100%. Can I ask you, what are the, we talked about sort of the dangers of not processing the feelings or not addressing those, but what are some of the benefits of doing it? Let's talk about like coming out on the other side and, and what, what do we get out of it? So a lot of people hear about post-traumatic stress and that's when, you know, we have a traumatized thing and we're still carrying all that with us. But what we don't talk about is post-traumatic growth. This, I mean, I, I feel myself glowing and buzzing inside when you talk about this because the, I don't get burnt out as a therapist. I don't get, I don't feel heavy when someone unloads really nasty trauma. I've heard some hideous things that you can rarely even find in a movie and the movie that would have it is probably so tough that not many people would watch it. You know, you see hints of it in a movie like Precious. If you've ever seen that, that's mm -hmm. heavy, right? And sometimes I've heard some stuff that's worse than that. So it's just like, there's heavy stuff. And the moment someone's facing it, it is so inspiring because what I believe is, let's say you're going through life and you have maybe this level of functioning, we'll have a baseline. And then something traumatic happens and your function goes down and you've got anxiety, you've got flashbacks, you're hypervigilant, you don't trust people, your relationships are shattered, your temper is on and off. Um, you just don't know, like all this stuff is happening to you. If you heal that trauma, you don't go back to baseline. You go way beyond where you ever were before. Because when you come out of the depths, you have a wisdom, compassion, and understanding that you could not have comprehended before you went through that. Post-traumatic growth is so beautiful that I could never conceive walking through this life without doing the work because it leads me places and leads my clients places that we could never have imagined for ourselves. Being comfortable and still is feels maybe more safe, you know, short term, but it is not as fulfilling and wonderful as this interesting <laughs> wild ride that we have. So benefits, I, I, I probably go on and on forever, but just hopefully it's enough to say, I have no doubt that I would never live the other way. Yeah. Just the, the massive growth. And I love that term post-traumatic growth. And I've also heard it called post-traumatic optimism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, um, I guess the idea of it's that, it's that annoying thing where people like are looking on the bright side of their tragedy, right? That's post-traumatic optimism, but it's only annoying watching it. If you don't understand that they've been if you're in not there. very dark places to get to where they are. They're not, hopefully most of them aren't repressing all of the terrible things and pretending to be optimists. They've actually gone through that dark, dark, dark valley, that cave and come out, you know, clawed themselves out and up the other side. 
um, yeah, the, the kind of the level of, of trust in yourself that comes from doing yeah. the work, I feel like cannot be overstated. Can, would you like to discuss that? Like talk about the level of trust your clients get with themselves. I love this so much. Um, core beliefs. I mentioned core beliefs before we have our beliefs, but our core beliefs about ourselves in the world, when we are using anything to avoid our feelings, I mentioned core beliefs that are inherently part of that process. This is too much for me. I can't handle it. I shouldn't have to handle it. This will overwhelm me. I will break. These are the kinds of things we believe when we're avoiding something. If we're avoiding it, part of us is affirming that is really scary. It's too scary for me. And every time we do that, that belief builds. Every time we face it using some technique, some method, some way that gets us to the other side and we have a sense of healing, it starts to build different core beliefs. And when people do it again and again, they start to believe I am not too much. That's a big one. I can handle these feelings. They won't overwhelm me. I won't break. I am stronger than these. I am resilient. I am powerful. I am stable. They start to believe that they are bigger than the feelings and that they are resilient. And when they start to really trust themselves, life changes. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. And there's such a big difference between this is scary and this is too scary for me right? Like yes. these things, some things are objectively scary. That's not wrong. That's, that's true. Yeah. You, the level of, of trust you build in yourself means that this is not too scary for me. It's scary, yeah. but I can do it. Right. And I think I can do hard things. I can do hard things. Exactly. Um, so you, you sort of detail this process in your book, which you touched on. And thank you for that. Cause I want to talk about that. Therapeutic mindfulness is what you was what you call it. And we talked about like using mindfulness to avoid and your process is to use mindfulness to process, to work through. Yes. Can you, so it's a step-by-step process. Tell me a little bit more about the process. Okay. So the process is about when you have a bad feeling, whether it's triggered or you just feel bad right now and you want to work through that, where are your feelings located? Where can you find them? When you're angry, how do you know? When you're upset, how do you know? Like sensations in the body, typically is how I think of them. There you go. So for example, if someone's uh, anxious, let's do anxiety. What ways do you know of that showing up? Anxiety could show up as a racing heart. It could show up um, as a a cold, heavy stomach. It could show up uh, uh, racing thoughts, pressure against the inside of my skull, right? Like, so nice, just, nice. yeah, no, I'm just, this is for a friend. This isn't me. No, I'm kidding. It's totally me. Um, <laughs> so. It was funny. No, no. I found it interesting when I first had someone respond where it was in the head, but there was actually a feeling, not just the thoughts. And it's always, when it's in the head, it seems to always be pressure. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing. So absolutely wonderful examples. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's funny. I find when anger is, I, I'm still working on whether this is an always connection, but sometimes when anger is coupled with hopelessness, it goes to the gut and it twists. Mm. Whereas when it's in the heart or in the chest, there's like, I could run. 
there's a potential action anyway, but it may or may not be, it may be very different. Some people it's very abstract, but the point of this is emotions are in the body. So mindfulness, my, my definition of mindfulness, as I mentioned, non-judgmental focused attention. So when we have a negative feeling, we can use mindfulness on the feeling, but the feeling is not in our head. We get caught into trying to understand why, let me analyze. If I just find out the source, then I can fix it and I won't have to feel bad. No, no, you still have to work through the feelings. I don't know what you're talking about, Ruth. I've never felt that way before in my life. I love that. One of my favorite things is when people are really stuck on that, I'm like, so if you knew why, would you feel better? Usually they realize that they win them, but sometimes they don't anyway, but you well, can go directly. What if you just strategy, right? To, to you're like, Oh, if I can simply think my way out of this feeling, I won't have to feel the feeling. It's just, a, it's just another avoidance strategy. Good catch. That's exactly it. If I figure out why I won't have to feel false. So what could we do? You already have the feeling, just go right to it and fix it. If we knew how, which, you know, I, I didn't know this growing up. Most people don't know this growing up. So um, using mindfulness on your negative feelings or on your uncomfortable feelings, I'll say, um, what we need to do is get out of our story, our narrative, the thoughts. We need to get out of those and we need to go to where the feelings are. And that's in the body. Could be in the chest, the stomach, the head, the shoulders, the jaw, the neck, could be wherever. But it starts with where do you feel it in your body? And then I have a series of questions that I ask. I call the body focusing questions that can get to you to get you that focus, that hyper focus. In fact, the focus will become so, so I guess hyper. Yeah. You become so focused on the actual feeling that the story either fades in the background or it's gone. And then we can actually do work at the source. So for example, I was doing a workshop a few weeks ago and a woman had shame and shame is one of the things that you can't fix with your head that that shame will be stuck but she had shame and so i said well if it was its own entity and where would it be where would it be in your body how big would it be well she says it's a large granite rock in her stomach right um okay if it had a color what would it be well it's kind of marbled gray Okay. If it had a temperature, what would it be? It's cold. If it had a texture, what would it feel like? It's rough and there's layers of it. Oh, and she shows me how big it is and it's just heavy. So there's a heaviness to it. Yes, it's heavy. So by this point, she's out of her logical mind because this is not logical, right? There's not actually granite in her stomach, but her subconscious is showing up and expressing this, this shame as a large granite rock in her stomach. That's cold. It's heavy. It's rough. And once she's hyper-focused on that by using those body focusing questions, then I bring in the second aspect of mindfulness, which is non-judgment. I say, okay, let it be there. Let it be uncomfortable just for now. These are the mindful phrases that I talk about. They're all in the appendix. Let it be there, open up to it. And a really important point of it that I'll give people at, at, at some time is this feeling is just a part of you that's hurt and we don't want it to be alone. So stay with it. And so I have, and so I keep checking in. What I do in this process is I'll go back and forth between the focused attention and the non-judgment. So I'll ask her, what's it doing now? 
And I think it got a little less cold and heavy. And then after a while I asked, okay, so what do you notice about the rock? Well, it's, it's not my stomach anymore. It's sitting on my lap. That was a first, by the way, I never had anyone have the feeling come out and sit on their lap. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, we're going to go with this because the weirder, the better. And I'll tell you why your logic is not in control when it's weird. This is your subconscious mind expressing something. It's like dreams. Dreams don't make sense. So if the feeling does not make logical sense, it means your, your logic is not controlling the narrative. Your subconscious mind is doing it. So now the rock is sitting in her lap and it's granite and it's big. It's less cold than it was. It's less heavy, but it's still there. And so I'm like, okay, well, let it sit there. Just be with it. Notice it, you know, give it space to express, be curious, whatever happens. These are all non-judgmental phrases, phrases to help you allow the process. And as we're going through that, I have her check in at one point. I'm like, okay, so what's happening with the rock now? Well, it flew off into space somewhere. Oh, <laughs> okay. And she noticed at that point, you know, I think I can ask for help. There's something at work that she felt shame if she needs to ask for help. And it was so heavy. She was paralyzed in that situation. So I'm like, okay, so you can ask for help. So when you think about you know, the target that was upsetting for you, what do you notice in your body now? And I'm thinking she might be cleared, but she has another layer of emotion come up. Shame is gone. She can ask for help, but she says, but I need to make sure they're right. So I'm like, okay, so let's go back to your body. What do you notice? Where is it in your body? It might be light and fluffy and happy, but it wasn't. She says, I feel it in my left arm. I I can ask, but I need to keep people at a distance. I need to check. I need to be protective. Okay. So I walk her through the feelings in her arm. Next thing I know, it's a, it's a breastplate. It's a metal plate from her hips to her shoulders. And it's got rusty screws, rusty bolts on all four corners and is covering the imagery of a dam or a shield or a plate or a cage. Those are actually very common, um, common metaphors for us when we need to protect. So she's got this breastplate that is protecting her. And so I ask her all the body focusing questions. Let's get super hyper-focused on this um, plate over your chest. And then I give her the, uh, the allowing phrases, let it be there. It's a hurt part of you. Let it show up however it needs to. Your job is just to listen. That's your only job. And the plate starts shrinking and then it shrinks and then it shrinks. And then it's just one little corner left and then it peels off. And now there's a plastic shield. It's porous. It's not as hard and protective. Um, so the so her fear and uh, mistrust has eased up a lot. And now there's room for stuff to come and go because it's porous, but there's still some protections. And the, And all that we did in 20 minutes in a workshop in front of a crowd. And so I stopped her there. So the process of, therapeutic mindfulness is to essentially to simplify it's just to alternate between the hyper focus on the feelings in your body and the non-judgment and the allowing phrases and you just go back and forth and back and forth and notice changes in your body I imagine it's it's easier to do like so many things like with a guide or with somebody to help it is. through it, is. it but it, it sounds like something that you could actually practice and make progress you know, in the, on, on your own. 
It's if you can tolerate some emotions, you can do it. I've had people that I've had to train and, and teach them until they're until they emotionally believe that they were strong enough. Mm-hmm. I've had other people come to me. We do it in the first session. They start doing it in between sessions and they're done with me in six weeks. Yeah, I, I imagine. Both. Yes, I could see that. And I also if the, the trauma is very uh, deep seated or highly traumatic, then having a trained guide, a trained therapist there would be uh, to me, I think, essential. Honestly, yeah, because of and the, even the, if you're, the safety issues, it is. And even if you're working through that deep stuff, if you can tolerate some emotion, you can be doing your own work in between. Mm-hmm. You could have one or two sessions in between therapy sessions and be moving a lot faster or something could come up in therapy and you can work on the emotions in between and, and just small bits of time, half an hour. Yeah. Like you half said, you don't have to be doing this all the time and you can use I mean, now we're going to call it the like avoidance mindfulness to get a minute to get some rest. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just also spend time doing this other process. Yeah. One thing I'll do with people when I'm working on this, because again, your mind knows if you're only using it to avoid, but we also, you need to fill the tank. You need fuel to do hard work, right? We need fuel to go the distance. So what happens at the end? So this woman, she still had a porous kind of a shield. It's softer. It's less intense. Porous means some stuff can go in and out, but there's still some protection and that's okay. And so at the end of a session like that, where whatever we're working on is not completely resolved, I tell the person, um, I want you to say goodbye to the feeling, tuck it in, whatever it needs. Does it need a cozy place to go? Does it, especially if it feels very young, uh, you know, does it want a blanket and hot cocoa? Does it want the beach? But just let it, you know, so there's sometimes we can play with that. But basically I say, say goodbye to the feeling, but let it know you're going to come back. And especially if it's somebody's first time in the, and there's an unresolved feeling, I'll say, let it know that you're learning how to listen to it. And you're going to come back and help it again later because you don't want it to be alone. And there's such powerful, kind messages. Sometimes people that do this, tell me they have never felt listened to the way they have this way. Cause I can listen to them all day long, but they feel it. They internalize it. They're doing it for themselves in a way they never knew how to do. So if the feeling's still there, just say, Hey, I see you're there. I'm going to say goodbye now, but I'm going to come back and we're going to keep working so you can feel better. Is that okay? And you'll get a sense. Sometimes the feelings like, I don't know. This is the first time you came around. We'll see. And that's okay. But usually when you listen and say, that's okay, it starts to say, maybe she will be back. And there's a comfort there. So yeah, you've got it. You've got it spot on. And I do want to let everyone know. So I'd mentioned a book. Yes, I have a book. Yes, you can buy it. But the um, process that I just had, that I just mentioned, if you just want the bare bones process, all those I have in downloads. The appendix is on my website and it's free. Anyone can take it. Take yeah. it, do it, try no, it. Please. No, seriously, go Pretty take please. a look because it's, um, it, you just said it was bare bones, but it's actually fairly extensive. It details pretty clearly how to, how oh, to do this process. I thought when I went and looked at it, um, well, this has been just beautiful and enlightening and I just appreciate that the work you're doing and all of that so, so very much. Um, if people are interested in your book, 
where can they get it? Is that on your website? Is that like an Amazon thing? Where's the book available? It's everywhere. Amazon, Therapeutic Mindfulness. My name is Ruth Fearnow. Um, or you can go on my website, ruthfearnow.com. Um, R-U-T-H and Fearnow, my last name is spelled <laughs> how it sounds. F-E-A-R-N-O-W. Like be afraid right now. <laughs> I will, and I'll also of course put all of that in the show notes so people can um get an easy click on it um Ruth thank you so much for being my guest today uh this has really been a pleasure um very insightful so thank you thank you Sarah it was wonderful I really appreciate it have a great day and I will talk to you soon <laughs>